my pleasure to introduce our next main speaker, a recovered compulsive eater who has lived in Region 2 and who has been able to walk through life's many difficult challenges using spiritual principles learned in recovery. Abstinent from compulsive eating and food behaviors for 12 years, we are absolutely thrilled that Anita is joining us today from the Norwegian mountains. Welcome, Anita. It's all yours. Thank you. I hope everyone can hear me well. I'll double check that before I start uh, talking. Great. <laughs> um, hello, everyone. My name is Anita. I am a compulsive eater. Um, and it is really, really good to be here. My, my date of abstinence is uh, March uh, 3rd, 2008, which means I, I somewhat recently had 12 years, which is an, a, a very confusing, uh, astonishing fact of my life. Um, that was, that was um, not what I had expected. Um, <laughs> and I am incredibly, incredibly grateful. And I'm incredibly grateful for this opportunity to speak. Um, I was, I was asked only a few days ago and thrown in a little last minute. And I am, I am astonished that I get to sit up in some beautiful, marvelous mountains up in, up in Norway. Um, hopefully with good enough, stable enough Wi-Fi. I had to check that before saying yes to, to doing service. And then I get to see all of you uh, halfway across the world. And, you know, I was, um, I got, I worked the steps the first time in San Francisco living there. And I really found my recovery in San Francisco and in, in the in the OA fellowship there. And I actually do recognize a couple of faces. I was looking through the videos earlier and I'm like, I know these people. I saw like Meg and Hannah and a few other people that I'm like, I know these people. Um, it's been, it's been a few years. Um, so what, what I'm going to be sharing about for the next hour is, is what, what I used to be like, what happened and what life is like now. Um, there was sort of an, an intro text on the website. Um, I did share in a meeting recently um, about the topic of sex inventory, and it was suggested that I that I bring that up and we talk about that today. And it is it has been an essential part of my recovery. So we'll see if we get there. If if that's you know a, a big part of what we talk about today, it's a topic that that um, is always a little. Um, scary and intimidating to talk about still, but it is, it is such an essential part of what we do. So, but um, I'll, I'll leave that a bit for later and I'll, I'll just kind of talk a little bit <clears throat> about what I used to be like um, before finding recovery at the age of 22. Um, so I didn't have many years of, um, of eating compulsively before finding recovery. Um, and what I used to be like is that already as a tiny little kid, I was uncomfortable in my own skin and in my own body. I was, as the big book says, restless, irritable, discontent. I always felt like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, definitely in the wrong body. There was just something always like off and I couldn't quite grasp what it was. And I was super, super shy as a kid. Um, I would, you know, I would isolate in my room. I would run into my books. I um, I was I was was born with a, with a with a decent brain. I, I had easy an easy time studying, and I knew all the answers. And I couldn't raise my hand in class because what if I said something stupid? What if people didn't like me? What if it was wrong? What if I was wrong? And so there was always this feeling underneath there. Um, I grew up in a 
very, very, very loving family. I'm, I'm with them right now here up in the Norwegian mountains. My mom and dad are just incredibly kind, caring people. Me and my dad might be a little too similar sometimes. We share some of the same character traits, character defects. So we had a tendency to clash, but, but you know, it was a family filled with love and compassion. And while we're on the topic, healthy food and good food behaviors. And like, it was, it was just really a really sane environment. And I never felt part of it. I felt like I didn't belong. I, you know, I had this like standing joke in my teens that like the, the, the postman probably slept with a milkmaid and then I sh showed up at the door. Like I didn't feel like I was part of, which for me today, 12 years into recovery, like I, I, I almost cannot recognize it, but that was the fact. I didn't feel like I belong. I didn't feel love. Um, there was love there, but I didn't feel it. I couldn't, I couldn't take it in. Um, and so there was just a lot of discomfort. I had friends, um, but, um, and, and I still have some, you know, one of my best friends is, is from childhood, but I was just always like awkward and uncomfortable. And that is like the best way to describe my entire childhood. Um, I, you know, food for me was there from a very, very early age. I, you know, we, the big book talks about crossing this line, uh, in, you know, after which there is no turning back after which there is no controlling it anymore. And, you know, I might have passed that at the age of two or three. I don't know. I've never had the ability to control it. I always wanted more. I've never had the ability to say, no, thanks. I'm full. No, I'm good. Thanks. But, but you know, no more candy for me today. Like it, it's just never been there. And I started lying and stealing and cheating my way to more, especially, you know, for me, it's a lot of the sweets, um, the sugary stuff. Um, and, and, you know, already from the age of three or four, I remember, um, you know, breaking into uh, the kitchen cabinet and, and, and stealing food. Um, and, and you know what, I think, I think most kids do that, but I don't think most kids have this like existential dread about it. It was just terrible. Um, and, and, you know, it was, and it was always like that. Like I would always try to get whatever I could, whatever I could have. Um, I was, I was chubby as a child. I was never overweight. Also, I think parts to my family having, you know, whole grain, healthy, wholesome, um, everything. Um, then I hit my teens and I realized that I could control the way I looked and the way I ate uh, post, you know, hitting puberty uh, by just quitting eating. Um, and so I did that for, for a couple of years. So I had an, an anorectic face and I did recognize it as such at the time. It was never bad enough to seek medical attention, um, but, but it was what it was. And it was recognized both by me and my, my parents as such. Um, and then I don't know what happened. Maybe, um, you know, um, anorexia wasn't for me. Maybe the, the compulsion to eat more uh, took over, but I started eating again. So I never needed hospitalization. And, um, you know, ate more and more and then moved out of home, moved out of the healthy environment, moved out of, you know, that and could make my own food. And from there, it kind of just exploded. And I will say that I have a lot of obesity in my family. Half of my family are all overweight. And usually what happened is that they hit their mid twenties and then they all kind of just, you know, um, increased. Can we call it that? Um, and so I knew where I was going and I saw that clearly. There was no doubt in my mind that that was what I was going. So for the next few years from the age of say 15, 16 till the age of 21, 
I was dieting, I was binging, I was under eating, I was overeating, I was restricting, I knew how to, to um, lose weight, I just eat great, I, you know, whatever green salad for, for three months, and only that and nothing, you know, and, and so it would come and go and I would gain weight and I would lose weight and I would gain weight, I would lose weight. And all the time, I hated myself. I hated my body. Um, I had this cycle and, and I do happen to be sober as well. That came, that came after, uh, after my, my, um, my abstinence. Uh, I realized alcohol also wasn't working for me, but I had these cycles where I would feel so terrible about my body. And I, I will add this, like my body was, I, I was never, I was never much heavier than I am today. Right. It was up and down and up and down. I was, you know, a few kilos heavier, um, double that for pounds. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe what is it like 10 pounds heavier than I am today. So I was never overweight, but the way I saw myself, like I used to say that, like, it's not my body that's broken. It's my eyes, right? Like whatever, whenever I saw in the mirror and this still happens, like I can look in the mirror and I'm like, Oh, today's one of those days. I'm going to keep in mind that my eyes are broken and the way my eyes connect to my neurons is just not working. And what I see in the mirror is not reality. And I just have to remind myself of that. And, and, you know, back in my um, late teens and early twenties, that was definitely the case. And I had these uh, wonderful cycles of, okay, I feel terrible about my body. What is the only way I, I know how to feel better about my body while getting someone else externally to validate it? Because that's what we do, because we don't work from the inside. So I, you know, I would go out and try to have a one night stand or a hookup. Um, the only way I knew how to do that was get drunk. So I would get drunk uh, and I would wake up the day after with terrible, t- terrible guilt and remorse and regret and a hangover. And the only way I knew how to cure that was eating. Uh, and so I would eat all kinds of sugary things to repair that. And then, you know, there's this lovely cycle there that just kept getting worse. Um, and, and it didn't take long for that, you know, and, and, and I tried every, like I tried so many things. Like I will say though, that coming into the rooms at 22, obviously I hadn't had time to try everything. There was plenty of diets and programs and pills and whatnots I haven't tried yet, but I had tried enough, right? I mean, like rubber band around my wrist so I could hurt myself every time I would think of certain foods. I would, you know, I would, as I said, I would be, you know, totally restrictive for, for periods of time. I mentioned my dad earlier. He paid me to lose weight for a while because I said I lacked motivation. Um, you know, there's all of these things that I did that um, wasn't helpful, wasn't healthy, um, and, and definitely um, didn't solve my fundamental problem. Um, which is, and, and, you know, my fundamental problem, the way I see it is what the big book says, right? That I have a allergy to certain food products. And if I put those in my body, I want more. I also have a physical allergy to certain food behaviors like restricting, right? Where I just, I just, I get high off of not eating, um, then I have a mental obsession. The physical allergy wouldn't be a problem. I would just abstain from, you know, my whatever ice creams or, or, or cakes or, you know, candy. I would just not have them. And the physical allergy wouldn't be a problem. My, my, the other part of my problem is the mental obsession, right? That once something sneaks into my mind, that this little thing would taste really good. If I, if I, you know, I'm, I can probably moderate it this time. I'll just have one, right? This, and it just sticks in my mind and it doesn't, 
it doesn't stop until I have that thing, which kicks off the, the, the physical allergy. Um, and then, then we're, we're on again. Right. And, and the way I, um, my experience with this, especially if there's, there's people who are newer on, on this call is that my experience with this, with this is that the only thing that could change that was a spiritual experience. Like I had to work on my inside. I had to work on how terrible I was feeling about myself, my guilt, my shame, my discomfort, like that's where I had to start. And when I found that recovery, then the mental part and the physical part, that sorted itself out. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. Um, so, you know, I started early or already early twenties. I had, um, I had consequences from my eating. I mean, I was in terrible shape. I hated my body. I mentioned that already. I also had, you know, um, uh, what are the English terms? I had three root canals and two crowns by the time I was 20. Um, and I always said like, I have terrible teeth. Right. And then from, you know, stopping eating compulsively at the age of uh, 22 until now when I'm 34, um, I've had like one cavity ever. Like there, there was nothing wrong with my teeth. Oh, I'd also, but before I was 20, I'd pulled all four wisdom teeth because of cavities. Right. And then 14, 12 more years. And like, I've had nothing. There's nothing wrong with my teeth. I was teeth. I was just eating all of the time. And always like, I didn't drink water. I just drank anything that had sugar in it. So, so I had these consequences, the self-hatred, physical consequences that I wasn't quite willing to accept. Um, and I also had like relationship consequences. So six months before finding recovery, um, I met someone who became my partner. Um, he, um, you know, we, I was newly, you know, I talked about my body issues and all of that. Right. And I was like newly in love and he was like all into me and totally like, it was super, super romantic. Um, and every Friday night I would come over to his place and we would make dinner together. And every Friday night, I just happened to have bought this dessert. Right. And I won't talk about the specific of the food because it doesn't matter. I know some countries are against sharing about food in OA meetings. Um, but, um, but I'll, I'll just mention there was a certain food product, which is one of my main trigger products. And I just happened to have bought that for dessert. And every Friday, I just casually asked him if we want, he wanted something. And most Fridays, he was like, yes, sounds great. And I made a massive portion to the, you know, one each and, and we would have that. And every now and then, because he was a normie, I was like, yeah, uh, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm full. And like my Friday night would be ruined, right? Like I would be so angry and so upset. And this is like three months into a relationship, a relationship that I had so desperately craved. And, and yet, like the night was ruined. I couldn't enjoy my time with him just because he didn't want to eat with me, right? Because for me, having someone who would eat the same would always validate. Like I wasn't, I didn't, well, I, I hid at home by myself and ate too, but it was more so like finding someone who would share it with me so that I could make sure that I wasn't abnormal, right? portions were massive, but he was eating them too. So it was fine. Um, and I did the same when like sitting with friends, I would watch what everyone was eating and I would, you know, follow their pace, whatever. Um, it doesn't really matter. We've, we all have those stories in to, to some degree or other. Some of us ate way more than I did um, before I got in, but, but that was my life. And what happened was that I was sitting with my mom that summer, summer of 2007, and we were talking about eating disorders and I 
I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know how to express it. And, and what I tried to express or what I ended up expressing, it was so spot on that later on, I'm like, wow, that was, that was crazy. I said, look, I don't know what this is, but I feel like the thoughts that was in my head when I was anorectic at the age of 14, those thoughts are still there but I'm just eating and eating and eating and I can't stop and I don't know how to control it, which is very spot on. I just didn't know there was such a thing as compulsive eating. Um, OA in Norway at that time and still today, from what I understand, I'm not, I'm not back in Oslo that often, um, has two meetings a week, two small meetings a week, and that is it in the entire city. Um, and so this wasn't a program I'd ever heard of. Sure, I might have heard of AA, but not of OA. And so um, I told my mom uh, and she agreed to uh, try to help me find a therapist, which is what we do, I guess. Um, she didn't know what to do. And by the grace of God, you know, I, I believe that, that in both in finding recovery and finding these rooms and with everything that's happened in my life since, I am being led. And so what happened was that through a random uh, acquaintance, through my little brother's school, she happened to find this woman who called herself a sugar addict and she was holding this like rehab class and I signed up for it. Um, I got a food plan that excluded everything, sugar and flour and stuff like that. But the most important thing she did was she told me, you need a spiritual solution. You need to go to OA. Um, and so I did. And uh, for about a year and a half, I would um, go to an OA meeting uh, every three weeks or so. Um, I would sit there and bitch about my dad. Um, and um, I found a sponsor. Uh, she gave me the workbook of, a, of OA and told me to like fill out the questions and call me when I was done with each step. Um, so you could, you know, mildly say I was slightly confused when I did that. I remember saying, um, you know, um, one of the questions, I think it was step one or two was like, how have I hurt my partner through my eating? Um, and I remember answering that. No, I haven't, you know, I, I don't think I have. Uh, and the same partner, like a, a year or two later said, you know, I would leave you right. If it wasn't for a way, cause you were, I mean, I love you, but like you were not someone we would want to live with. Um, but I couldn't see it. I was, I was blind to it, but I was also very not guided. And today I believe in the kind of sponsorship where I sit down with my sponsees and a big book in the big book in the front of us. And we read every sentence in the big book together. And that is my sponsorship today because I was so lost and I needed that. And what happened was that I kept going to these meetings. I moved to San Francisco for a work opportunity, work and school opportunity. And um, in San Francisco, uh, the first few months, I didn't go to many meetings um, and life got really, really hard and really, really painful. I was like, got a super cool job offer in the best city at that time, at least in the world. Uh, you know, I, I, I loved it, but I was just hurt and miserable and lonely. I went home for Christmas, um, met my dad and we mirror each other quite well. And I saw all of my glaring character defects and I ran back to San Francisco and I ran back to the meetings and I went to one meeting every day. I went to 25 different meetings in San Francisco over the course of like a month or two, because I, I just realized that I need it. Like I need a spiritual solution. Um, I had stuck to my food plan. I had white knuckled it as best as I could. Apparently I had some fight in me at that point. 
Um, but I, I was, I was tired and I was just uncomfortable and, and, and everything just hurt. Like my soul hurt and I needed help. And I found a sponsor in a meeting, um, who said, uh, you know, Jackie in San Francisco, for those who might know her. Um, and she, um, uh, you know, she said, look, um, I, have you ever done a fourth step? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, okay, look, I don't have time to sponsor you, but I can't say no to someone who hasn't done their fourth step and has been around for a while. Let's do this. And so we had like these 40 minute slots squeezed into her every day and we, uh, everyday work. And we sat down and we read the big book and, read, and worked the steps. Um, and, you know, going from like pain and discomfort within five months, of like making it through the steps, my life got background music. And I, and I mean that in kind of like a literal sense, like I would walk down the street and like, I, there was this like melody in the back of my mind that like, you know, suddenly like everything, like I was like totally on pink clouds um, and it worked, you know, um, I, I did my fourth step and we'll talk a little bit uh, more about the, the sex inventory part, but I did my fourth step, a thorough one, step one through three, of course, shared it, shared my fifth step, did my six and seven over the course of a month. It was quite a substantial format. She gave me then went home. Um, I went home for, uh, for a, a two week vacation in September that year. And I did like all of my nine step amends, uh, in the course of those two weeks to everyone, um, that needed to hear that in Norway. Um, and I started sponsoring and I sp started sponsoring really quickly and I still sponsor a lot. Um, and for me, that has been my lifeline. I, uh, moved back. I moved from San Francisco to Sweden where there are three meetings a week in Gothenburg, uh, where I came from feeling like a newcomer at like three or three and a half, four years uh, of abstinence. I felt like a newcomer when I was in San Francisco and I moved to Sweden and suddenly I was like, I was the only one in the meeting who knew what the traditions were um, uh, in that, that one of the meetings. And, and I was, you know, among the ones with the longest term sobriety. And I had a big resentment against OA for, for quite a while um, until my sponsor kind of looked me squared in the eyes and said, look, good for you you get to do a lot of service. Um, and for me, service has been such part of my solution all along. Like I, um, if, if I am, you know, if I'm able to do it physically or internet connection wise, then I should be willing. Then I, then I am willing. I will just say yes, even though I sometimes don't want to, uh, which includes, you know, uh, speaking at meetings or, or, you know, taking on a, a, a zoom tech host service position or, um, or sponsoring. And I will say yes to that. Um, and then I want to talk and I'm going to look a little bit at the time um, because I want to know how to position out this story. But I want to talk a little bit about the sex inventory because for me, that was essential. Um, it is something, uh, something that is uncomfortable to talk about still for a lot of people. Uh, we don't talk about it enough. And, and I just want to clarify, which I, you know, which I always do when I, when I talk about it, it's, you know, when we say sex inventory, it's not just about the, the physical act of sex, right? It's about intimacy. It's about closeness. It's about, you know, being face to face and intimate with a partner uh, or multiple partners. Um, and, uh, you know, that intimacy is something of the most kind of basic human nature. And it is so important that we talk about, it, and I don't think we do enough. Um, 
my home group in San Francisco was the uh, Thursday night uh, Our Lady at Safeway meeting, I think it was called. Um, where it's an LGBTQ meeting where every once a month there's a speaker on body image and once a month it's a speaker on sexuality. It's a hell of a meeting because it, it gets very, very raw and very, very honest. Um, and I needed that. Um, I had so much shame around my sexuality, around who I were, was, am, um, <laughs> who I am. Um, and there was so much fear. I mean, there was so much fear. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things. Like, it doesn't really matter what my sexuality is, but I'll mention a couple of things because they might make the story make sense. So I am queer, um, which means I can fall in love, crush on, or have sex with people of a variety of genders. Um, I am polyamorous, which means I can fall in love with multiple people, uh, and I have. Um, and it doesn't you know, and, and I'm definitely on the, you know, when the big book talks about straight pepper diet, that's definitely my end of the uh, end of the scale. Um, but to me, that doesn't, you know, and, and that was why the shame and why the fear. Um, but I think it doesn't really matter what our sexualities are. Um, we are all so terrified of intimacy. At least that is my experience in working with a lot of sponsees over the years that that intimacy and that connection and that closeness and and not to mention like taking our clothes off and being like in our bodies uh, that's that's discomfort next level right and there is a tendency to to go either way to either be promiscuous in a way where we don't honor ourselves and our own boundaries or to go entirely, let's call it anorectic. And, and I'm not talking about this in the, in the sex and love addiction sense, because that is an entirely different topic and there's a separate program for that. I'm just talking about what the big book talks about, which is dealing with sex as we do with any other problem. It is a problem we have, let's, let's deal with it. And so for me, that where I started was entirely closeted I had, um, you know, started coming out a little bit with who I was, you know, early on in recovery. And then I, I heard someone say in a meeting that we addicts, we usually mistake intensity for intimacy, as in just because something is intense, we think it's intimate. Now, I want to be very clear, that does not, is not a big book quote. It is not in any of our literature. Um, it is not related to, to the 12 steps. It's a I guess it's from some kind of rehab center somewhere, but I heard that. And suddenly I thought that my, my sexuality must be wrong. It must be just because I'm an addict, right? I should live like this, this, this lovely, you know, super good, super nice, super good girl life because I'm an addict. So anything spicier than like once a year to make a baby is probably not, you know, not going to be good enough for me. And that's what I heard in meetings. Then it took me, as I said, it took me a couple of years to read the big book. Thank God um, this woman uh, read the big book with me um, because what it says, and I will, I will uh, find it here. So we have uh, an exact quote. Uh, I mentioned I'm up in the mountains, so I don't have my physical big book with me, but well, uh, a phone will do. Uh, that means we always have it around. Um, and I'm in the wrong chapter, how it works. Um, there we go. So, um, you know, the book talks about how we all need an overhauling in our sex lives. Um, but here is the most important sentence for me that when I read this, 
and I, I'm, I'm sad I hadn't read it before. Um, it is on page 69, funnily enough. Um, but uh, what it says is, uh, where did we go? Uh, come on. Yes. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. loathed. And I remember actually properly reading that sentence for the first time, and it, it just blew my mind. Like, my sexuality, my body, my person is God-given. Um, it, is, it is a fundamental part of who I am, and it's, and it's fundamentally good, right? It's God-given and therefore good. And, um, and that was one of, the, one of the things I read. The other things I read is that uh, the big book says, we want to stay out of this controversy. The controversy of, is it once a year to make a baby or our, you know, swinger parties and multiple pe people and whatever we want. You know, there's a, there's a long scale of activities that we all feel is good for us. Um, and what the big book says is, um, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We hard, we'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? And so what it was like for me in this regards was that I was so terrified, having written out my fourth step, having written about a lot of things, a lot of fears, a lot of shame, I was so terrified that I would sit down and I would come out and I would tell these things to my sponsor, specifically around my sexual conduct, I was so afraid that she would reject me. I was so afraid that she would stop my fifth step and throw me out and never want to talk to me again. That was, you know, I, I know better now. I know that, that no sponsor would ever do that, but I was so afraid of that. So what I ended up doing was I had to like, have like this like little pre fifth step, fifth step with her. I asked her because I was like, I'm so terrible, terrified. I'm so scared. Um, can you like, and, and, and I told her some of these things um, in advance and, and came out to her the day before my fifth step. And she was like, oh yeah, whatever. That's fine. Um, you know, no, no big surprises. Um, but you know, that was a level of my fear and shame. And so I shared my fourth step and fifth step. Um, and, and I had a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, release in that, a lot of comfort in that. Um, and here comes, you know, for me, what is my truth, though? It took me several more years. Like, I, I found some peace and comfort in it. But it took me many more years. Because the thing is, this is a program of action, right? It's not a program of, of you know, do it once and then you'll be cured forever. Um, and so that is true for my, you know, for my food, for my character defects, for, uh, for my relationships, for my sex life. Um, and it's something I had to learn. And so it took me many more years to, to start practicing these principles and everything, including in my relationships. Um, and um, I want to, I want to talk about a couple of things specifically. Um, I, it was, <laughs> it was mentioned, and this is somewhat tied to sex inventory and in some, some, some ways not, but it was uh, mentioned in, um, in the, in the bio that was written by, uh, you know, about me on the website uh, or whatever we call it, this little introduction of this speak that, that, you know, I, um, the, I think it said loss of a partner. And I want to talk about that a little bit because, because I also want to talk about how, um, 
how we get through life on life's terms. Um, so, uh, and this is a slightly, you know, I mentioned polyamory and I mentioned having multiple partners and the partner I talked about that was there with me before I found recovery, uh, we were together for 12 years and we um, separated last year. Um, a few years back, we decided to open up our relationship and have multiple partners. Um, that was a process um, that came to be because I worked the steps again. Um, I worked the steps again, um, and I this time what I was asked in my ideals, uh, what, what I was asked by my sponsor at the time was writing out an ideal. And I hadn't done that the first time around, not in that way. Um, but what she asked me to do was write out my ideal after I'd done the fourth step. So I really had like looked thoroughly, uh, and there was a lot of issues around sex that came up. And she asked me to write out my ideal like a prayer a prayer about what I want to grow into. And so, um, you know, the ideals that I wrote out was about um, learning to set boundaries. Uh, let me see if I can quickly find them here because I have them on my phone. I had pulled them up earlier. Um, here we go. One second. So, so the way it reads, you know, and I'm not going to read you the whole thing and it's personal and it's intimate, but what my ideal that she had me write out was, was a prayer. God, in the future, I would like to be bold, daring, and honest with what I want in my sexual relationship. Honest with myself and others. When I know what I want, I would like to ask for it, accepting the possibility of a rejection and gracefully accepting a no when it comes. And it kind of goes on like that. And, and what was amazing about that process for me is it got me very, very honest with myself and others around me. And here's the tricky part, right? Because she had me like do the fourth step and then write this, this ideal. And then the problem is this part of the big book. Um, you know, we, we, it says we, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Uh, we subjected each relation to the test. Was it selfish or not? Uh, we ask gold to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. Whatever our ideals turn out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. And I had just written my ideals. And then I read this, this sentence and I had this like, oh, darned moment where I'm like, I have to live up to this. I have to say what my truth is. I have to communicate and be honest. And so I did, which led to an opening up of our uh, marriage, um, which led to me meeting someone who um, had 15 years in a separate fellowship. And it was my first time having a, a relationship with a 12-step person. And I fell madly and utterly in love. Um, it was a relationship like none that I'd ever had. And I got to have that and my husband at the time too. Um, and it was be beautiful and it was amazing. Um, and, you know, uh, the summer of 2017, uh, yeah, summer of 2017, him and I, uh, I traveled over to the U.S. where he lived. He, he was in um, Florida and Chicago and eventually in California, San Luis Obispo. And I met up with him there and we, you know, rode to Harleys all across the U.S. for three weeks together. Um, we had all of these crazy adventures um, and then in the spring of 2018, he died in a motorcycle accident. 
And um, I got the call when I was in India for a wedding of all places because timing and the universe has a sense of humor. Um, and I, you know, I got to be there with his family. I traveled over to California, held a memorial service, um, traveled back, traveled to Florida for the, for the actual service. Um, and the only thing that got me through the first month and a half was every three minutes I would pray and I would say, God, I can't. God, I can't, I can't do this on my own. I, I, can't, I don't know how to do this. God, please help me. Um, I couldn't meditate for months because every time I sat down, there was this big, massive black hole of a void that would just open up. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going not gonna to go there right now. Um, but I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And it is um, fascinating to me because I came into these rooms as like a hardcore atheist. And then what gets me through the worst time of my life is prayer. And I made it through those months. I made it through it abstinent. I made it through it sober. Um, I did, um, I had been without sponsors in, in OA for a bit. And so I made sure to reach out to, uh, at that time, so I made sure to reach out to an old sponsor and ask her, her desperately to help me. Um, I started checking in my food in the weeks and months again, which I hadn't done for a bit, which had worked fine for me, but suddenly my life was just falling apart. And so I would, I would take these measures, right? And I, I kept in touch with my sponsees. They knew, of course, everything that had happened, but I kept in touch with them and with my sponsor, uh, sponsors, as I have two programs. And I just stuck really close to the program. And, and people both in this fellowship and my other fellowship, they were the ones that just picked me up, sometimes literally from the airport and provided a place to sleep, sometimes more figuratively. But, you know, I made it through. Um, which, of course, you know, when things like this happens, makes you question everything in life. And um, about a year, a year and a half later, um, after a lot of heartache, a lot of grief, uh, I ended up divorcing my husband as well, which was also one of these things where um, there was a lot of fear. Uh, and so what I did was I sat down and I did a fair inventory. I did a massive fair inventory the night before I was to go home and see him. And I shared that fair inventory with my sponsor for, for hours um, the night before. And I went home and I went home to see him. And, um, and the reasons for the divorce is, is too, too complex to, to, to cover in the 17 minutes we have left of this meeting. So I won't go into it, but it, but the point is it was a God led process where I, you know, I inventoried and I shared and I wrote and I found my, my truth and I, and I stood firmly in that. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, navigating relationships, navigating heartache, navigating grief, it's just, you know, I need my higher power in that. I need the program in that. Sometimes I very definitely deliberately need step work on it. You know, for me, like working steps on whatever challenge is in front of me is the only way I know how to deal with this. Like I have no tools whatsoever for these tricky situations beyond step work 
which includes step 11 and prayer. Um, and so in all of this craziness that has been my life for the past couple of years, three years, I guess, you know, I get to meet that with a set of tools that are very practical, um, that are written down in detail in this, this little, little big blue book. Um, and I get to meet life with that. Um, I don't know what I would have done without it. Um, I definitely would not have abstained from compulsive eating. I would definitely not be sober. Um, and in all of that, um, you know, in all of the heartache and all of the grief, there is always this fundamental feeling, this fundamental belief that I'm given everything I need, that I'm being taken care of, um, that nothing happens in world in God's world by mistake. Um, I am so grateful that my belief in my higher power does not mean my higher power has decided the things that happen in my life. It doesn't decide that John needed to die. Like that is not how my higher power works. What my higher power does is give me the tools I need to cope with it and make sure that whatever happens, I get to learn from it. I get to grow from it, sometimes painfully so, but I am then placed at the next level. I am given people and things and circumstances in my life that will help me go through it. Um, and that, you know, for me, that, that circumstance, that person um, was also placed in my life. Um, That's time. That's time. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I, I will just mention, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this, that, you know, after all of this, grief and, and heartache and, and pain. Um, you know, I did, I did, uh, find myself in a new relationship, um, which is again, not the purpose I, you know, in making the decisions I made and going through the divorce, um, it was not my purpose to, to, you know, leave it for another relationship, but, you know, um, I'm able to be open uh, today with him and to other people. Um, a lot of the things I've shared about in this hour, I, you know, give, you know, five or 10 or at least more than 12 years ago, these are things I would never share with anyone. And today I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm comfortable in my own body. I'm comfortable with myself as a sexual being. I'm comfortable with my sexuality being God-given and good. Um, I'm comfortable that I can, if I can make it through, you know, John's death, abstinent and sober, I can make it through anything. And really anyone can, can make it through anything um, if we have our higher power on our side. And I am, um, I hope my story tonight made sense. I didn't know what I was going to share about. I, I prayed before the meeting that God would put words in my mouth and that that would be what someone hopefully needed to hear. Um, I'm grateful that I got the chance to, to be here uh, in this surreal time. Um, and with that, um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Anita. So we have time for questions. Emma from Oakland. Thank you, Ella. Hi, I'm Emma, compulsive overeater. Um, thank you so much, Anita, for your share. I really appreciated it. Um, my question was, if you've had experience in how you've dealt with 
resentments towards like maybe how the dominant culture at large doesn't support various aspects of your identity? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I would, I would kind of refer back to what the big book says about treating our, our sex lives, our sex problems as any other problems. And whether we talk about sex or, or gender or patriarchy or social norms or whatever it is we talk about, whether it's related to sex or not, you know, we treat it as any other problem, which is like putting it in my re resentment inventory, putting it in my fear inventory and putting it into my sex inventory. Like I would, you know, there's, there's things that showed up in all three of my inventories and it really is about seeing what is my part in it, which often is a lack of acceptance on my part. You know, it, it, I have to accept that I live in a world where shit happens and where people are terrible uh, because sometimes they are and sometimes they're judgmental. And, and I just, I have to accept that. That doesn't mean I don't get to fight it. It doesn't mean I don't get to protest. It doesn't mean I get to be an activist. It doesn't mean I get to, don't get to be a role model, but, but I have to fundamentally accept it to have that peace and serenity and to accept that like I am who I am, no matter what anyone else thinks. And sometimes it's really hard. It still is. Um, yeah. Um, hi, I'm Beth. I'm a recovering compulsive eater. Anita, it was wonderful to hear your share. Thank you so much. I'm really curious to hear when you talked about going through the deep grief, deep, deep grief, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, when you said like you couldn't even meditate for a while. Did you go back to meditation eventually? If so, when did you know when it was time for you? And what does meditation look and feel like now for you after having gone through that? Yeah. Um, so it was, it's hard to tell how I knew it was time. Um, you know, I would just pray and pray and pray and pray and, and not be ready to like feel it. And I think it was, probably three or four months after he died. I was like, okay, I, because I like, I wanted to, like I wanted to meditate. I wanted to have that connection because prayer is great and it got me through it, but it wasn't that connection when I sit and listen quietly. And so, um, so I wanted to get back to it. So I actually like made a few attempts now and then where I would like sit down and like breathe. And sometimes it would take about 10 seconds and I'm like, oh, nope, nope, not going there. And I would just like honor, honor that and not like push through it. But then I would do that every now and then maybe, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious decision, but like maybe once a week, once every two weeks, I would try to sit down. And over time, I felt more and more comfortable in it. Um, I did use a couple of different meditation apps. I, I still do. Um, and, and I'm not a meditation guru in any shape or form, and it's very random how I do it, and there's no systematic effort to it. But what I did do that summer was I started looking up a few grief meditations, it, just no specific school or anything like that, just like people having offering guided meditations on grief. And so the first few meditations I did was, was specifically with that in mind, and I would just like cry my out, eyes out throughout the whole ordeal. Um, which was, you know, liberating and freeing. And, um, you know, there was, at some point, there was still this, like, there was still the black hole, but, like, I was able, 
and this might sound very physical, but like I was able to like touch the edges of it. Like that was what it felt like that those meditations, like it was, I could, I could all like, I could, I could start sensing it. I could start feeling it. I could start kind of embracing it. Um, but I'd say that was in month three or four. Um, and then, and then it wasn't, it wasn't a systematic, like meditating my way out of it or like into it or whatever, but, but it was, you know, that was just, just part of it. And, and now I can meditate normally if we want to put it like that. Now it's, you know, whatever practice and, and, you know, either a timer or a, a guided program or whatnot. And, and that has nothing to do. I'll, I'll every now and then put on a grief meditation when I'm, when I'm in that mode and, and want to keep processing it because it's still there. It's always going to be there with me. Thank you again, Anita. That's all the time we have for this session.